This is The Lack with Alan Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today, we're doing Mad Men, specifically the first and the last episode of the first season, but I have seen all of Mad Men, so I may reference some things outside of that. I'm going to kick us off. Mad Men comes to us from the 2000s, the age of the antiheroes. A bunch of shows came out about men who were smart and charismatic, but spiritually broken. The Sopranos, House, Sherlock, Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul, Louie, House of Cards, Ozark. There were lots of these things. Each of these shows offered its own critique of the modern man, the man concerned with earthly things. I was a teenager during this period. Young men were drawn to these shows. You might think you wanted to be one of these men, but then you'd keep watching and you'd discover that the rugged empiricist with the money and the status and the women still lived an empty life. It was an important lesson to learn and one of the last meaningful lessons I got from TV. Mad Men features three different men at different points on the same journey. There's Don, of course, married with young children in the prime of his career. Above him, there's Roger, a slowly fading star, just starting to show signs of rust. Beneath him, there's Pete, young and resentful, desperate to get ahead, and envious of those with more. Then there are two women on altogether different paths. Peggy wants to work alongside the men, while Joan wants to rule over the women. Both women sleep with men, Peggy with Pete and Joan with Roger. Neither relationship goes particularly well. When people think about Mad Men, they think about the cigarettes, the outfits, the gender dynamics. In the early days, the question of Don's past intrigued audiences, though as the show wore on, Don's arc mattered less. The thing that always stood out to me was the sheer fact that these people worked on Madison Avenue. They created and sold advertisements. They existed to gin up demand for products that, for the most part, nobody really needed to buy. I am reminded of Hugh Laurie's character in Peter's Friends, the film we saw last time. The Laurie character wrote jingles for ads. In that film, everyone knew Laurie's job was a bit silly, including Laurie himself. Underneath the silly job, though, the Hugh Laurie character was a good guy. He had a lot of musical talent, and he could play the piano fabulously well. He was stuck wasting that talent on jingles, and everybody knew it because capitalism in all its vulgarity could find no better use for him. It was his wife and family that really mattered. The jingle writing was just a job. That's not how it goes in Mad Men. These people are all very serious. They all take their work entirely too seriously. They drink their own Kool-Aid too greedily and too deep. No one believes in the ads more than the people who make them. No one thinks wealth and status and sex matter more than the people who sell these things. Over the course of the show, there is a slow unraveling of the ideology that drives these men to waste their lives in the service of capital. Roger, Don, and Pete, in different yet similar ways, all experience frequent misery. They all repeatedly paper over the lack with new women, and as the show goes on, the endless parade of affairs exhausts the audience. It becomes clear that these men don't know what they want. They become conventionally successful, but they are chronically unhappy guys. The show is less comfortable exposing this in its female characters. When the men working at work in advertising, it's because they're vapid hedonists. But when the women work in advertising, they are boldly going where few have gone before. As often happens in American TV, the writers gradually fell in love with the characters, and the show's critique was slowly blunted by the pathetic American tendency to force happy endings. But for me... What made the show worth watching was its latent critique of the professions. If you get the markers of success without gaining wisdom along the way, success is less than useless. It becomes an addiction and a means of enabling further addictions. It's not just advertising executives. Breaking Bad is about a teacher. House is about a doctor. Better Call Saul is about a lawyer. Ozark is about a financial advisor. In these shows, the leading men all went to grad school, but they went to get access to high-status jobs. Professional degrees are functional. They're vocational. They teach you definitions, but they don't teach you how to define. Many go after them because they provide secure paths to six-figure salaries, comfortable homes, doting spouses, and German luxury sedans. But then you get those things, 
and you start to wonder whether the work you do really matters or is really done in the right way for the right reasons. The quality of professional education is rarely high enough to enable these otherwise bright, charismatic people to fully articulate these feelings, to do anything useful with them. Many drown these feelings out with sex and drugs and the whir of gadgets. In the real 1960s, TV shows about the professions tried to present them in a dignified way. Perry Mason worked to help the legal system find the truth. Dr. Kildare liked to give his patients warm life advice. Many people went into the professions hoping to do some good. Some went into the professions hoping to be respected to win other people's approval. But as manufacturing jobs moved overseas and real wages began stagnating, access to stable jobs tightened up. More people began moving into the professions just to get the job security that used to be available even to many ordinary workers. By the time Peter's Friends came out in 1992, Madison Avenue's golden age was over. An advertising job was just a job. In the last 20 years, the legal profession has become oversaturated. Working conditions for teachers and professors are increasingly grim. The same economic logic will come for the doctors and the accountants and the engineers and even the computer scientists before too long. How much longer will this image of the successful but empty professional remain compelling? There are fewer shows like this these days. Ozark is wrapping up soon. It feels like the end of an era. In recent years, TV has been drifting in a more escapist direction. There are more shows about extremely boring people in spaceships. I could never really sit through Firefly or The Expanse. But perhaps one of these days we'll get an adaptation of Gore Vidal's novel about the Roman Emperor Julian. Oh, I'd like that. Whatever your taste, they find a way to get you. <laughs> All right. So next up. We're going to do Mina. Okay, so I didn't watch Mad Men uh, before. I obviously watched the two episodes for this <laughs> show today. Um, but I I sort of, uh, I did watch The Sopranos, but I didn't watch Mad Men. And, and because perhaps something about the the topic or something about the aesthetics or I don't know. I, I, I didn't get into it. And and watching these two episodes again, I I think I made the right decision. <laughs> um in the sense that I, I think there's some sort of complicated things going on with the with the question of nostalgia. And I am going to talk a bit about the whole smoking and drinking and this portrayal of a way of doing things which has obviously been eradicated like office culture today it does not consist of smoking drinking making racist comments or sexual innuendo or any of those things it's flipped obviously for the better um even if it's extreme in in some other ways uh to uh, a much more um regulated non you know, alcoholic, non-unhealthy way of, of 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 working. And there's something interesting, I think, in these shows, not just Mad Men, but also in a slightly different way, um, Stranger Things um, and other shows that are set in different periods of American history that, of course, fetishise to some extent both the superior knowledge that we now have. So, for example, the first episodes of season one is a lot about smoking he has the lucky don draper has the lucky strike contract and and of course there's there's the the we now know of that smoking is bad for you right in the way that they're talking about initially in the in the show so we can look back at them and with our superior knowledge our superior office culture and say oh you know isn't it quaint they don't they use these massive typewriters they you know, they don't have mobile phones. Um, they do have certain kinds of freedom, perhaps not the sort of freedoms we might might want. Certainly the complexity of uh, Peggy's uh, on the sort of sexually liberated, but at the same time, the, the punitive cost of that as she finds herself pregnant, um, where she she's unwitting um, to the fact until she 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 gives birth in the final episode of season one and and manifestly there is a sense in which uh the depiction of how unjust and how difficult it was for women to to balance let's say career if you were ambitious in a career way with the expectation that either you would have a family 
or that you would be a sort of um, libertine. Um, none of those things are actually uh, work out particularly well <laughs> for the women. And, and the wives are depicted in that kind of Betty Friedan way, often as, as these very bored and depressed women who, um, who are very upset that their husbands are having affairs and that they're kind of, you know, um, that there's something kind of bad about that. So there's nothing good about this world from a certain, let's say, feminist perspective or from a civil rights perspective or anything like that. And in that sense, then, the enjoyment that is depicted at the level of this kind of smoking, drinking, you know, this kind of excessive, um, or sex, for example, is, is almost like, uh, the thing that is, uh, we might be nostalgic for, even though everything else around those things are things that we no longer want. We don't want anti-Semitism. We don't want sexism. We don't want racism and so- we don't want homophobia. We don't want, you know, all of these things. And I so- you sort of wonder at the sort of material level, what this kind of does to the viewer in a certain sense. What does it mean to, to watch all these characters depicted doing these things that we can't do in our, in our lives. And the Stranger Things reference is also to the way in which the boys are kind of cycling about. Like they have, a, again, a certain kind of freedom, which is now curtailed. It's not that kids don't still ride about on bikes, but they they do so perhaps with much more security, with a mobile phone, you know, much more kind of protective uh, logic than that you can't just go and have an adventure um, in the, in the sort of ways depicted in, in Stranger Things. Um, and so I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of something about this, you know, history of freedom, American freedom, which I suppose poses the question of what freedom is today. And I, I, I take what Benjamin's saying about the unhappiness as well, you know, that the, the ad men buy into their own fantasy, even though they're kind of cynical as well. You know, they want everything. They want sex and products and, you know, gadgets. And, you know, it's a deeply cynical um, world and they they ruin their relationships um, repeatedly. Um, what What is actually, I don't know, I'm just going to leave it as posed as a question, really. Like, what effect does it have on our understanding of the history of freedom in the American context to see people doing things that we can no longer do um, in the work context, um, but not only the work context. Um, and I don't know, is there, is there a kind of provocation there, I suppose, in, in the making of these sorts of, um, uh, programs that is maybe quite ambiguous or ambivalent, um, at the level of, of enjoyment and the level of our lack let's say. Interesting, a different direction. (laughs) This was Helen's pick, so Helen gets to close. What do you got? So, yeah, I wanted to talk about mostly perversion (laughs) in relation to Don. Um, But I have to say, I uh, love Mad Men. I have watched it through, I don't know, in the teens of times at least. Like, I used to fall asleep watching Mad Men (laughs) So we didn't have sleep for years. But anyway, um, the, part of the thing that really interests me is the fact that, you know, it, it's at a t- these turning points in capitalism where, you know, the tendency of the rate of profit declines and a new means of extracting value must be invented. And so this is sort of around the rise of consumer capitalism. You know, it's not just um, going to... Uh, cut it anymore to, that just people buy things that they need. They have to be sold things and um, they have to have their lack pointed out through advertising to tell them um, that they are missing something and they need to, des- and, and this instigates a desire for something they don't need. So this is, you know, um, we have a, a different form of capitalism today, but this sort of rise of consumer capitalism, I think is um, really interesting. Obviously, you both sort of um, touched on this idea of the tendency of the rate of profit to decline in terms of the professional jobs and sort of like, um, as you were saying, Nina, something more um, libertine in um, a position that isn't just, that is above the fray of having every ounce of value extracted from them as labourers in terms of these executives. Um, and yeah, we don't see this anymore. We we, are, we don't even commute to work, a lot of us anymore. We are at our laptop and we have every ounce of value extricated from us at all times. Um But yeah, so in a way, I think that this series is doing something very subtly psychoanalytic. I don't know if it's intentional, but I'm just going to delineate um, 
the perverse structure and how I think the series relates to it. Obviously, psychoanalysis develops in uh, through Freud at a, at a certain point. You know, um, at the beginning of the 20th century, I find those years sort of um, the 1910s a really interesting time. Obviously, Freud sort of starts this work in the late 19th century, but you know, you have the Titanic, World War One, all of these events sort of mark a turning point in capitalism. And I think that this um, denied um, dimension, religiosity, um, that that becomes ever more repressed through capitalism, but is ever more um, returning in symptoms, um, generates, you know, the need for something like psychoanalysis as a practice to develop. And I think that it's interesting that in this period of time, you know, you have Betty going to, um, Don makes Betty go to psychoanalysis. Um, so there is a psychoanalytic sort of thread running through um, this film in terms of like theme, um, not the film series, but, um, you know, there, there was a sort of, let's say, um, a, a, a second birth of psychoanalysis at this time in terms of theoreticians. And this could be a response to this um, repressed this this um sort of excavation of this religious tendency through advertising and and therefore this sort of return in symptoms for people at this time so um i would say that advertising makes perverts of us all so zizek's film uh, the pervert's guide ideology and the pervert's guide to cinema he says that uh, cinema is the ultimate pervert art right because it's basically the ideological film um tells you how to desire it points out your design tells you how to desire well it doesn't point out your desire it tells you how to desire and this is this is like the ultimate sort of cult leader pervert act um so interestingly we what i try to do the films that we do i think are trying to do the opposite so they're trying to like as ideology critique or as like anti anti pervert films maybe let's just say um but so the pervert, <laughs> each um, subjective structure sort of operates on sort of a fundamental logic. And I'll explain how perversion comes into existence. But sort of the fundamental logic of the pervert is sort of one rule for me, one rule for thee. But also that the, perv- the, pervert sub- the perverse subject um, is very good at trying to make, at making the other perverse. So it's like you have a lack and I'm going to point out that lack for you. So where does perversion happen? It happens, obviously, we have the neurotic subject, the perverse subject, and the psychotic subject, and then also potentially the autistic subject. And Freud discovers repression. He discovers the unconscious. What is repression? So the repression that we sort of know in common parlance is you sort of take an unpleasant idea, you remove it from its affect, you reject this unpleasant idea into the unconscious, and that affect attaches to something else. So, you know, for instance, you have a colleague who's, you don't like your colleague, and it's because they have the same middle name as your mother or something that, <laughs> you know, so that you really are repressing, you know, um, the fact that you have some issue with your mother and you're, you know, it's returning in some kind of symptom. And this affect is attaching to something, you know, this sort of pseudo logic in the world. But that's really secondary repression. So the repression we talk about, like sexual repression and um, that kind of repression is really secondary repression. And there's something more primordial in primary repression, which happens at the level of subjectivity developing. So, you know, Freud asks the question, you know, um, what is civilization? What is civilization? What causes civilization? Repression. And what does civilization cause? Repression, right? So it's this sort of like um, dialectical notion of repression. You, um, subjects only exist in so far as they repress, but repression is really a repression of less than nothing. So primary repression happens um, when the uh, subject is born into language. So it's the birth of the subject who is able to repress. So you have two sort of stages of this. You have the know of the father, and this is in sort of Lacanian sense, the know of the father and the name of the father. And obviously in French, they both sound the same. Non, one is N-O-M, one is N-O-N, one is N-O-M. But basically, so the know of the father is the point happens when it doesn't actually have to be a father. You know, it can be some symbolic other comes in and, you know, symbolically separates you from your mother's breast. So you're born too soon. You're attached to your mother. You have all your needs and wants pointed out by your mother. This this break happens and you start to separate. And so you become your own singular being. Um, and then the name of the... So, so and this sense of loss is something we, we are always marked with because we are born again outside the womb. We once were attached to a breast and we lose it. And this is a sort of the the you know, the same psychoanalytic idea that relates to the, the um, Garden of Eden. 
that we sense that there was once, we are all sinners, you know, we sense that there was once because we've bitten the fruit of language, but we kind of sense that there was once this utopian wholeness that we could get back to. But the utopia only exists insofar far as we, we lose it because when we were attached to the breast, we didn't know it was a utopia. You know? So we, we were always marked by the sense of loss. Um, so, and this is interestingly like kind of, it's at this level, um, this sort of repressive level that psychosis and perversion sort of like, mishaps around it um, generate that subjective structure. And I think, you know, often um, psychotic subjects, well, a a regular form of psychoanalysis doesn't really work in the same way because they don't have this experience of loss in the same way. And sometimes talking to some of my um, sort of psychotic friends, they can have a real kind of like difficulty (laughs) with this concept of lack and be like, no, this isn't, this is not true at all. Although I sometimes think that like, um, in a way, reifying lack can help psychotic subjects. So like turning the nothing into something. But anyway, so this is like kind of psychoanalytic original sin. We're inherent, inherently conflictual. This sort of primary repression generates the speaking subject because we're separated. This no of the father. Um, and, and it's in that lack that generates frustration. And then we have, you know, language comes in because of the frustration because we need to start to communicate in a way that bridges um, this sort of gap. But then the name of the father happens in terms of desire. So the name of the father is anything or anywhere where the desire of the mother alights. So the child is this sort of like um, recognition of the gaze of desire of the of the mother, which often is the father. It doesn't have to be a father, but like this is, you know, symbolically, you know, Lacan uses the name of the father. Um, but basically a perverse subject Maybe he's gone through that, that no of the father, but they haven't, the name, the instigation of the name of the father hasn't happened in a full way. So this sort of um, joint attention where the child, um, the mother looks at this object of desire and the child looks as well and recognizes, right, that's the mother's desire. So there's something going, something kind of goes wrong here. Um, They kind of don't get this um, deep set understanding of the gaze of the other. And so this is, this is perversion. And basically, um, this leaves the perverse subject with this constant desire to want to name the other's desire because they haven't had the mother's symbolic desire named. Um, it's a sort of more elusive thing. And they have this sort of sense of power of being able to name the desire of the other. <laughs> so um, this is why, you know, in a way, uh, advertising is the ultimate perverse art because it's basically pointing out constantly, you know, this gaze of desire has not alighted on a singular thing, but it's constantly undermining this gaze of desire and constantly naming it and pointing out the lack of the other. And this is exactly what you need. So this is why um, perverts make great cult leaders, because they constantly telling people what they should desire and what they want and what will fix them. Um, So yeah, so advertising is a perverse art because it names, names desire. It's all about joint attention. So it's about, you know, us uh, guiding our gaze of desire towards towards some object that we we discover we 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 lack. Um, so we're naming the desire of the other, and that's the object. Um, so he's putting. So Don is putting you know his audience back into the perverse structure of not knowing the other's desire. So um, yeah, I mean I don't know what if there's anything uh, political to be said in terms of that, but I think. Um, uh, Madman does this really well, and the backstory of Don kind of really does psychoanalytically uh, analytically suggest. I mean, it's obvious in terms of his symptomology. He is like he's such a perverse man. Like he's one rule for me, one rule for thee. He treats women terribly. He fucks off all the time. He's you know got this giant sex drive. He just sort of uh, he's seen as this genius man who he manages to convince people to treat him in sort of a different way to everybody else. He obviously. Um, you know, uh, throws the rule book in the air in terms of social ascendancy. He sort of is living this line away. That's not necessarily a perverse thing, but it just takes a sort of level of um, symbolic balls where you kind of don't um, buy into the neurotic logic of the big other to be able to do that, I think. Um, and of course, at certain points, he just he just disappears. You know, he just drives away and, and, and goes on these sort of escapades. Um but yeah, and I think basically that at this period of time in consumer capitalism, where in order to generate more profit, and we see uh, profit generation happening, like the ex- excavation of profit happening in different ways now, but this is a way to um, li- get people to libidinally invest in things that they 
don't need, but they come to believe that they need. And this obviously lends itself to a certain amount of um, frustration, dissatisfaction, neurotic symptomology, which I think some of the characters in the film uh, and the film in the series do um, portray. All right. So uh, listening to all of that, uh, I have a little bit of of thoughts about uh, what Nina said about how we're not free to do things in the workplace uh, that we used to be free to do. And I guess my thought is post-COVID, with a lot of people working from home, they are kind of free now to do a lot of the things that you could do in a 50s office. Uh, At home, uh, you can say all kinds of horrible things if you want to, and you can drink and you can smoke and you could do other things that you couldn't do in the 50s. And I think if you'd offered the guys from the 50s the opportunity to work from home, they would have turned that down. They were not entirely comfortable at home in the domestic space, in the space of of the spouse. And in part, they went to work to be in a different space that played by rules that they understood. But these days, in part because work no longer permits that level of uh, of of behavior now a lot of people are very excited to work from home yeah this is true um you're right and i i think that, you know in mad men you also have the kind of blurring of of work and play constantly people are barging into the office to have a drink to celebrate something else and you know the in the first episode they go on the stag do together as work colleagues and as friends or in this mixed um space yeah, so I mean, it's you. You are right in the sense that the kind of um, how how to put it, like the the parceling up of <laughs> what one's own desire has become restricted to the the home the house, which is now an office, in which you may or may not live with someone else or with your family or a dog or something. But you know, it's blurring the other direction, and I and I suppose yeah, maybe something else that's being fetishized in these historical series is the communal dimension you know with all of its rough edges you know and i and i think um you know helen is is similarly right about this this psychoanalytic dimension it's very explicit right in the first episode they have a a sort of german sounding woman who does a report on smoking in which she references the death drive which they call the death wish you know, and they and they contemplate trying to sell cigarettes on the basis of this insight that people actually like to do things that are destructive, um, <laughs> and they ponder how advertising could benefit from this insight. Of course, there's the psychoanalyst, and you know, we know from the history of advertising that not only were the surrealists often involved in making uh, advertisements, right? So that the the art of of, of dreams and the unconscious fed directly into adverts. Um, and someone like Dali as a consumer um, character, performer, as someone who is selling um, himself as art and everything as art, life becomes art in that way. Um, but then also, you know, Edward Bernays, as we know, is like Freud's cousin and, you know, is a great uh, branding expert. You know, like there are many, many stories about Bernays. My favourite one is the the one about selling books. He was commissioned to sell books. And instead of advertising books, he contacted all of the architects who were designing new houses and asked them to put bookshelves in the design so that people had to buy books to fill the shelves. You know, and this kind of intelligence, you know, which is kind of very double-edged, is, you know, like Helen says, playing with the perverse, creating desires, giving name to desire, where you don't need them, <laughs> you know, it's this endless, you know, uh, bid to create new desires and to this this thing about itching, they talk about the itch and calamine. It's like we need to be the calamine for an itch that people didn't know they had, you know. So they're literally creating this irritation, like I want this thing, whatever it is. You know, we're far beyond the the age of rationing and things being made to last, you know, this is the beginning of planned obsolescence and, you know, um, and all that. So I think it's, it's interesting in that regard to to think about how these serious subjects like psychoanalysis or, or art or surrealism, you know, have this connection already, you know, in, in our history. And the point about community a show that came out shortly before Mad Men, 
even though it is, of course, a contemporary office show, is The Office. Mm-hmm. And The Office, initially in its British or British-influenced form, was relatively critical of the workplace. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as it went on, it, it even more so than Mad Men completely succumbed to all of the American foibles and completely fell in love with all of its characters and began pairing all of them up and so on. Uh, the thing that kind of stuck out to me is that it seemed like by the time they got to the end of the office, the writers of the office felt that whatever the flaws of the office, the fact that it was a communal space redeemed it. Just the fact that it was a communal space even though there's no particular reason why any of the people in that office should like each other or should want to be friends, mm-hmm. for most of the show's length, none of these people seem really to get along with each other very well. And they all have friends who come, you know, who are from outside of work. But by the end, th- there's this desire to celebrate the office as a communal space. And so the whole narrative of the show completely flips. Its themes all completely turn around upside down. And so in thinking about, you know, Yes, you can smoke and you can drink and you can do whatever you want in your house, but you won't have any community with you when you do those things. And instead, what's going to happen is that you're going to do a lot of other things by yourself that are the kinds of things that a person can do by themselves, like be a hikikomori who happens to do Zoom calls for work from time to time. And I think that's kind of where we're going. Yeah, and but also, people prefer that to continuing to go to the office in reality, and that's what the office yeah. got wrong. People would rather be hikikomori and get paid to do that than go to a modern office. It also, I mean, all of the fun stuff is on your dime, right? <laughs> you know, um, and it, it is something that looking back at this office, how much they spent on entertainment and. Um, how it was okay, especially for people like Dawn to swan in it at, 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 at like 11 o'clock or something. Um, yeah. And uh, it's interesting because you talk about um, the different professions gradually being succumbing to market forces and being more and more and more uh, restricted, restrictive in terms of income and um, in terms of, you know, well, not restrictive, like excessive in terms of exploitation. And it really has happened in teaching. Like that happened, you know, over a decade ago, and it's happened in academia over a decade ago. Um, and there is the thing is that you say it's coming from medicine. Like in a sense, it already ha- like in the UK. Obviously, there were all those um, junior doctor protests several years ago. You know, it is it's it's coming for everybody. You know, we are the our own grave diggers. <laughs> we are our own professional grave diggers. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, and, and I guess like, yeah, lawyer, lawyers are probably the next the next. Well, in the States, lawyers have gotten it much worse than doctors. In the States, all of the humanities people, everybody who came along and wanted to do a social science or humanities degree in undergrad and then needed desperately to come up with some way of justifying that to their parents said, well, I'll do that degree and then I'll go into law. Mm-hmm. And too many of them did that. And now it's not nearly as good a path for them as it was. And now people's parents are more suspicious when they say, oh, I want to do a humanities degree. I want to do social science. I'll go to law school after maybe. There's quite a lot of overlap between philosophy and advertising, too, I have to say, because, of course, you know, the manipulation of, of concepts is something that you become adept at. And I think when um, Deleuze and Guattari write what is philosophy, they're quite mournful. They're very sad about the fact that basically slogans and assertions and concepts are basically all just fodder for <laughs> for selling right and and why and why not you know i mean we're surrounded by i mean there's literally beauty companies called philosophy you know like there's no there's no reason why these things you know can't exist and of course they do um so i wonder about this is there any way of preserving concepts or preserving thought from its branding you know or or when what happens when thought becomes branding i have to read you this the the most (laughs) my sister has a food company and the most amazing copy you'll ever read is food food branding copy like it's total bollocks because they can't they can't say anything they can't make promises they can't but they um, can have a philosophy right all these food companies have their own philosophy so, so this, their is, values. this is uh, this is lactose-free milk, and I honestly, you eat, by the way, as well, food food ideology is amazing. 
So there's a we have a local shop in our village, and it's actually quite a nice shop in a, in a garage, and they have. But it, all like it's amazing going in even to this small shop, and you you see the presence of food ideology. So the latest was I took a photo of it the other day. These um, fitness foods. So you know it's like ho it's like homemade bars and pancakes and stuff, but they're all got like fit like whey protein, but they're all like gluten free and organic and sort of like these balls with sort of like. Although it's always um, that uh, speculous flavor, Nutella flavor, and for, like some Kinder Bueno flavor. These people who are like into fitness are obsessed with these like flavors, like cake batter, like whey protein or something. But anyway, but now you buy it and uh, there are stickers on everyone saying support Ukraine. So they're doing some support Ukraine thing. You know? And then also you can, everything has a QR code where you can scan the food onto your fit, My Fitness Pal tracker. It's just like this weird fucking food religion you know anyway um yeah i can control reality through my calories except calories are just like a really um clumsy non-accurate measure of uh some form of energy when there's so many other different factors anyway so this this is um this is this uh, dairy so welcome to feel good dairy and then it's got a little asterisk so there's an asterisk coming later on when it comes to wellness and feeling good nobody knows you like you so if simple, nutritious, delicious goodness is your thing, then don't hold back. Slurp, gulp, guzzle. Go with your gut and live with all your might. Lacto-free. Delicious dairy goodness that's easier to digest. Best enjoyed the way you like it. Like, what does that even fucking mean? It literally <laughs> means with all your might. Like, what the fuck? Wow. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean- you know it's good for you. If you think this is good for you, enjoy it. Exactly. It's like, we trust you to think for yourself, but we're trying to create a vibe where you think it's good. It's so strange. But yeah, seriously, if you start reading healthy packages, it's just it's amazing. It just is like, oh, it's so strange. It's so strange. You're supposed to feel self-indulgent while you consume fake milk. Yeah, you're supposed to... F- Okay, fake, but this is the other thing, by the way. So, so, okay, like in terms of like, so the cigarette thing, the death wishes, the German person calls it in this, you know, you, you want what's slightly bad for you. So you're ne- the problem with broccoli is that you're never going to, it's not that inherently broccoli potentially, some people might like, like broccoli. That's not the point. It's the, it's the, um, it's the being good for you that's the problem. It's stuff that is bad for you that is enticing this is like to do with the whole utopian logic related to lack we've talked a million times and self-sabotage is a real key factor in enjoyment i have to say so i am for a long time i have health issues and i had to eat a very very restricted diet for several years and one of the foodstuffs that i could eat so much of was chocolate i ate so much chocolate as a health food because it was one of the things that i could eat but now I see chocolate as a health food and it kind of slightly disgusts me. And I'm like, oh, it's such a chore to eat it because it's good for me. <laughs> so the way to get over food stuff is to like literally believe that ice cream is a health food. Then you'll stop. Literally, and I can, I can find arguments. I can maybe hypnotize people. I was saying that Benjamin should have a career as like a giving really good therapy by like subjectify, uh, like alphabetizing and rationalizing all the like, horrible dynamics that you face in society and you think it's your fault, like, you know, the fallen professionals and you can give them like a wide, it would be really helpful to a lot of people. But I think I can get people to eat more healthily by convincing them genuinely, because I do genuinely think that um, food that is deemed unhealthy is in fact very healthy. And then you'll start to actually really fucking enjoy vegetables. Seriously. So (laughs) it's like, the problem is with all of this. So I saw recently, there's this new chocolate bar that is a zero calorie chocolate bar. A, it's not even food. Like, what is it? It's just destroying your digestive system. It's just giving your digestive system gristle it can't deal with, some like guar gum bollocks. But, and also it's sort of confusing your body by like giving it a sweet signal, but then no sugar to, you know, so your body gets sort of biomechanically confused. But also like, it's just not, it doesn't have, it doesn't have, you don't get this like enjoyment from it because it's not, the fact is maybe you'd start to like it if you actually do realize that that toxic shit is actually going to kill you. Then maybe that's what makes it enticing. Not the fact that it's good for you. <laughs> yeah. So it, so it, it, it's your plan to do both ways. So to say that things that are 
bad for you are good for you and things that are good for you are bad for you because then you'll like them more because they're naughty. I mean, I remember this <laughs> cake, ad- the cake advert in Britain when I was growing up was like, yeah. I think it was like the British dairy industry. I don't know. It was like cream cakes and, and the slogan was naughty but nice. Yeah. You know, so it was like <laughs> telling you, oh, you know, you know, you shouldn't really eat this because, you know, it's bad for you, but it's nice. I don't know. It's, I mean, how, it's-, it's how the environmental <laughs> movement caused the truckers to start rolling coal. Right. You shame people about pollution enough, they start to do it mm-hmm. to get a sense of catharsis. Yeah, no, they exactly. deliberately 100%, 100%. pollute just for the sake of transgressing. No, exactly. You create, you create the very enemy that you, you, you know, you claimed because a, you, you, you need it, but also, you, but also it, yeah, it, it causes the person. So it's like your point, Nina, with the Eminem lyric. Um, but yeah, no, so the environmental movement really needs to, if they want to w- it to work, they need to be less puritanical and more risque and say that they're well, not yeah. I mean, solving I mean, the problem. Mark, <laughs> Mark, Mark, as in Mark Fisher always used to talk about this in terms of like how to libidinize politics, you know, like you can't get anyone to do anything by saying, by being wholesome and good, you know, it doesn't work. Like you have to make these things sexy. <laughs> somehow you know whatever that means whether it's like plugging into this self-destructive I mean I I, you know I've been trying to read something about addiction lately is quite an interesting new book I'm just reading and it's 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 so complicated when you when you look at the world when you've had an addiction problem or let's say whether it ever ends you know I don't think so uh I think all you can do is sort of manage it but you know it's like you're in the world there's this one thing that you are somehow hooked or obsessed with or have a fantasy about you know and you're completely wrong about and you know you're wrong and but nevertheless you're completely over attached to this thing um to the extent that you you become completely irrational right so for example if you know someone who's addicted to cigarettes but you yourself are not interested in cigarettes right transitive in your mind you can transitively say well i don't care about this thing why do i care about that thing, you know, why can't I simply say, look, you know, someone else's addiction is not interesting to me at all. Like, why can't I apply that logic and say, well, why can't I make the thing that I'm obsessed with not interesting too? It's not interesting to other people, you know, it's, and it's so weird, the the sort of underlying fantasy, which is tied to death drive, because this thing is very destructive for you, whatever it is, if you're an addict, you know, it's the thing that damages your your you your health your ego your relationships your potentially your work whatever you know it, it's it's so obviously destructive um but it's somehow in the world as this thing and you can't it's very difficult to change your mind about it mm-hmm. even if even rationally knowing all these things you know you see it it sort of promises eternity or it promises some sort of thing that it doesn't have it's not in the drink or in the drug it's just not in there, but you think it is. <laughs> but this it's- is you know, so. So, in terms of death drive, death drive is less to do with death, I would say, and more to mm. do with utopianism. Like death drive yeah. is utopianism. It is. It's the self sabotage dynamic that utopianism necessitates. So, like this whole green capitalism that you can elide contradiction you can eradicate contradiction and have clean capitalism or you can have capitalism without antagonism like you are going to by definition because you can never get to that logically sustain like the most horrendous murderous like universe destroying coal burning shit you know it's just like the the only solution is to find this elliptical good infinite enjoyment in knowing that um, utopias don't exist. So I, I just seem to think like, because one of the healthy things that addicts do, even though like, because there's, there's different types of addiction, but it's like to get really into sports, like loads of addicts become like marathon runners, for instance. And it's like, there's something about, um, even though marathon running is not good for you in any way per se, but you know, it's probably better than taking heroin. I don't know. But, um, but there's something about finding a way to orientate that addictiveness into some kind of elliptical acknowledge, like acknowledgement that the utopia is never coming, but that you can act in such a way 
that you enjoy the enjoyment. So that you enjoy like the process of training or something um, itself. So we need to find a way to enjoy um, like climate abatingness. And I don't think, I think we're just like the way, like the, the, the pure attack, like it's, you know, this is, Gijek goes on about this all the time in terms of like how aesthetic our society is at the moment now that dead, uh, God is dead, but has sort of transcended into the unconscious. So, you know, it's, you know, Coke without sugar, coffee without cream, sex without sex. So like the least sexual stuff we see now is the stuff that claims to be to do with sexuality and promise, you know, that kind of like um, capitalistic, capital adopted, um, you know, edginess and explicitness. That's just like the most profoundly unsexual thing because it's, it's not transgressive in any way. It's become, it's like this, as again, like coffee without cream, it's sex without sex. It's like edginess without edge. Um, and it just leads to the puritanicalness just leads to the worst kind of like mass toxic jouissance, like horrible politics, death of the planet bollocks. It's yes. kind of in the nature of democracy. It's a system that runs on what people desire. Yeah, it's, I think that's why Thomas Aquinas says it's, it's the least bad of the uh, bad regimes. Mm -hmm. Because uh, for Aquinas, it, while the whole society is being run on the basis of private desire, at least it's the majority that are ruling it. So uh, in, in some way, shape or form, a large number of people's private good is at least being considered. But it's not a system that is built around comprehending or making sense of other forms of value. But we have a, yeah. right now we have democracy without democracy. Right. We have this sort of like democracy, but like, is it? No, I mean, not in any meaningful way. It's not it's not governments, governance by the people for the people. Of course, it's not. It's like a um, oligarchy <laughs> run by elites at, le at the, you know, at best. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah well, it's it's a kind of dialogue between democracy and oligarchy. Yeah. Uh, and what the democracy does is it determines which set of oligarchs are in charge. The democracy does that on the basis of which set of oligarchs cathartically please it more. Uh, because the oligarchs don't concede very much in the way of material concessions, all they can really do is give vague cultural promises, uh, moments where you feel like you've been seen recognition, recognition politics. Uh, that's what they get. Well, in a way, we do have a politics of desire because in a way, that's all you're allowed. It's like you can't, if you, you know, this is why the culture war stuff is always about desire. I mean, this stuff around grooming at the moment, you know, it's become this big part of the discourse in inverted commas in the last couple of weeks. I, I don't pretend to understand exactly what's going on with that, but it's obvious that you're allowed if you like, or the terrain of struggle is desire because it's not talking about economics or anything <laughs> more meaningful. Well, this isn't a desire the, devoid the, of desire. It's like... Well, yeah, I mean, it's not really des desire it's either. also it's like not, somebody else's desire, like right. the infinitely offended other person who we don't even know exists. It's like this person who happens desire. Yeah. This is for a lot of ancient and medieval theorists, the distinctively democratic thing is this fixation on desire. Uh, because in uh, ancient and medieval societies, there was no realistic chance of any kind of major land reform or uh, economic concessions to people. Uh, but you could have a system where you get these moments of, of great emotional relief from political displays. And that is what characterizes the ancient or medieval democracy. It's not a welfare state. It's not a system that economically takes care of people. Uh, it's not a system that is really run for everybody. It's only run for the citizens of the democracy and only in a narrow sense. Because you know, in, in an Athenian democracy, most of the power is exercised by the small handful of, of people who have all the charisma because they went to the rhetorical schools and they had the money to play to pay the uh, uh, the, rhetor the rhetoric teachers and they paid the rhetoric teachers to learn how to move the audience and so there's a dialogue in democracy between the orator and the audience and you can't get out of that there's no version of democracy that gets you out of the orator 
uh, and the orator is always an oligarch. So you can't really have uh, pure democracy uh, in, in any meaningful sense. It's always some chunk of rich orators uh, getting by with the support of different crowds that yeah. constantly change. And I, I think for a lot of the medieval theorists, politics is indistinguishable from magic as well, because magic is a manipulation of desire, like if you read Bruno. And so it's all about bonding. It's like, how do you bind people to you in particular ways? And that politics in many ways is about this, you know, and it's sort of indistinguishable from magic. And I, I, I love that. You know, it's like the theory of yeah. desire is, is the theory of politics, is the theory of magic. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is. A, I mean, I was just thinking about Occupy and the attempts at kind of direct democracy, which is which are also fail. You know, in a way, the horizontalism is a huge problem. The lack of lead, you know, all of there's the always an orator who's, yeah. who's in charge. Well, the, yeah, at least for a while, at least for a moment, until the next one comes along and displaces the previous one, and. A lot of, of people try to kind of get away with peddling a, a sort of soft libertarian socialism that is built around this idea that there's some kind of true democracy that we're going to get that uh, they really struggle to specify. And the ancient examples that are often invoked don't at all work in the way that uh, is being suggested. You don't have in Athens you know, constant transfer of wealth to the poor. Uh, it's not how those societies ran. There's enormous inequality in ancient Athens. There's slavery in ancient Athens. It's not socialism. Democracy and socialism do not obviously go together uh, and don't obviously reinforce each other. That's not to say that you can't, through democracy, try to pursue things. But uh, oftentimes there's a kind of political utopian fantasy of a version of democracy that has not existed, but which is we're promised and told will eventually exist if you vote for kind of these, you know, liberal left, left anarchist types that don't really have a, a rigorous economic analysis of why things are the way they are, but have couched it all in political terms and think if you just get a, a more democratized set of institutions, suddenly you'll unlock all, all these economic possibilities. Uh, and I think it's wasted a lot of people's time. Mm. For sure. My sister has just walked in the room because she's just packing up. Is she, lo is she looking for her milk without milk? No, she's, <laughs> she's looking for her boxes for her sugar-free products. So she is a, she makes sugar-free. She, she makes, it's the podcast. <laughs> she, well, what's she your makes. position on fat? Helen, like animal Fat's fat. great. Fat, yeah. oh, oh, I see. Right, I see where this is going, right? It's just I'm I'm spending a lot of time with the person person I love and live with, and he is beginning a diet. If you so oh, to really? me, and so and so we are having these discussions because there's a book and it has these ideas. Uh, interesting. The thing is, though, I think that human physiology is um, functions in diverse ways at different times, dependent on the situation of the body and the issues at play. So, for some people. Not eating very much fat, I think, is good. For some people, eating more fat is probably good. I think there's certain types of fat that haven't been eaten until recently that are um, not really that um, amenable to human bodies. Um, and you can see the massive eruption in certain um, metabolic illnesses at the same time as the introduction of these things into the food supply. And there was a huge... Um, there's this real um, sort of like narcissistic crusade by this one very wealthy man to vilify animal fats um, because uh, in the, in the, like, I think it was in the sixties um, and this led to, you know, basically things like beef tallow, which are very healthy foods being um, completely cut out of the food supply, basically like McDonald's chips used to be fried beef tallow. And now they're all sorts of like made up foodstuffs. Um, but, and, you know, there was a sort of this confusion that because they contain cholesterol and cholesterol later in your body, if you have high cholesterol levels, that indicates heart disease. But there's also reasons why your cholesterol levels go up that are also the things that lead to heart disease. And just because something looks like a clogged artery doesn't mean that it is like, just because it looks like butter, you know, do you know what I mean? But um, 
I think that, but then some people do well on eating less fat. Some people mm. need a lot of fat. It, uh, by the way, I'm not a dietitian, so even though dietitian is the made up one, which is the, there's, there's one that's like a made up one, like a nutritionist is like a qualification. The other, maybe the dietitian is the right one. The nutritionist is like the made up one. But um, yeah, if you have like a liver, sometimes you need more fat to lower the, um, like the effect of the sugars that you're ingesting. Um, I, so really very like people at different stages of their your body's functioning require so many mm. different things. Um, so unfortunately, lots of things that seem like a one size fits all solution, mm. lots of people who try it will just destroy their health. Um, so a lot of yeah things that you do in the pursuit of um, health perfection lead to disaster. Um, but I think there are some people who have a very good vision of how human physiology works and that can be helpful to, for a lot of people. But then some people, for instance, like losing weight is not necessarily that healthier process for a lot of people, depending on how you lose it. Right. Because like if you eat fewer calories, then you will lower your metabolism and having a strong metabolism is a very good thing. And then you have to end up eating less and less and less and less and less to lose weight. So if you do it that way, that could be, but then some people need to lose weight because having the extra weight is more unhealthy than going through the process of losing weight. Um, some people also are fine, like a healthier if they're bigger, some people are healthier if they're smaller. Um, but yeah. And, and sometimes things like a diet that probably isn't recommendable for like the long term. Sometimes it's like, well, you kind of have to do it. And sometimes you lose weight um, in situations where you eat more like, so it's funny because I mean, I haven't been an athlete and had loads of health problems. I've done every sort of like regime under mm. the sun. And I'm at a stage where I, the more I eat, the more I lose weight, the more I forget to eat, the more I gain weight. And that is a logical, I can see how that works in terms of my own physiology, but like it just varies from person to person. So, but then sometimes like, I think also if you've never dieted before, whatever you do will work. <laughs> then, but you know, you have this, this is the thing that like, the calorie is such a bollocks concept because Let's say if your body temperature is running a degree centigrade higher than somebody else's body temperature, you're burning so many more calories than the other person. If you, you know, if you're in a warm house or a cold house, if you are eating certain types of food, um, also things like exercise, if you mm -hmm. exercise too much, you know, like say the thing where you know, an athlete gets a really low um, heart rate, well then to almost to feel normal to get the metabolism going, they have to train loads. You know, so your body adapts um, so you have this constantly changing. It's not like there's a machine where it's like calories in, calories out. It's like so much more complicated. Um, but yeah. Damn it. That <laughs> random. <laughs> no, it's good. It's interesting. I, I, I do, do think there is... Mm. Sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say, it's like I do... I don't know, the older I get, I do feel like more uh, drawn to particular foods. And I wonder yeah. if it's like, oh, is that because they're good for me or something? You know, like in a personal way you know it's like probably yeah there's definitely things that when you get like a craving i think there's like probably mm. some minerals or, uh, but again it's weird it's like yeah. those are things in the world you know mm -hmm. it's like how does you how do you know that they exist know, yeah. it's, it's strange a, there's a thing they say that as well that like um see there's all this thing about like veganism and climate and mm -hmm. some people who were open like the first vegan restaurant in LA, they they are no longer vegan and they have this biodynamic farming thing where they like use animal carcasses to like fertilize the ground and stuff and there's things like you know having ruminant animals on the land does stuff to the mineral content of the land so there's all sorts of things like this sort of really black and white kind of like veganism good for the environment animal but like it, it's more to do the the dynamic it plays really like excessive production and capitalistic production in terms of animals rather than animals you know agri agriculture per se but the um they, there is a thing of like the average food item, like an orange has many fewer minerals than it would have had, like say 80 years ago, because the, I'm not an expert in this. And I'm, so don't accuse me of pseudoscience people. And I apologize. This is always a touchy subject. I have to have a disclaimer. This is just like some thoughts and ideas. This is not like the absolute truth. Um, but yes. So I think there's loads of factors as to why people um, in terms of, body size and weight and stuff uh eking up and up and up and up and up it's lots of different factors that aren't really being considered it's hard to know what the absolute truth is 
And on that note, I think we'll have to cut it off for today. We're at about an hour. So thank you guys so much for listening. We're going to go do the B-side on Patreon. We hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.